0: Your Majesty, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the outpouring of your spirit last year. And yes, we do hunger and thirst for more of you always, including now, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> this, this week, a year ago, God began pouring out his spirit in the University Chapel. But as we know, empowerment by the spirit is not life becoming a vacation. Sometimes revival comes after hardship. Uh, that, was, that was the case after about a million Igbos were killed in uh, Nigeria in the 1960s. It's, it's been the case with many revivals. <clears throat> Sometimes revivals come to get us ready for hardship. Shortly after the 1857 businessmen's revival in New York, we had the Civil War shortly after the Welsh Revival was World War I, and the Korean Revival occurred during and before foreign domination. And think how it worked with Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is announced in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, as the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit, but then in verse 10, the Spirit comes on Jesus so that he becomes the model for the Spirit-baptized life. While he's being baptized, the Spirit comes on him. And then we see what the model looks like in the next few verses as the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness for testing. Jesus models the Spirit-baptized life, and it includes testing, as Peter was soon to learn. Peter follows Jesus from Mark's first paragraph about Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Peter's a fan right from the start, but he denies Jesus near the end of the Gospel and is welcomed back as a follower of Jesus only in the Gospel's penultimate verse. In between, in the first half of the Gospel of of Mark, it takes the first half of the Gospel for Mark to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Then it takes the second half of the Gospel for him to recognize what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, that Jesus' Messiahship entails the cross. Well, in verses 27 to 29, we see marking the Messiah. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He's not having an identity crisis. He's checking the disciples' knowledge. They give other people's opinions. Jesus is a great prophet. But the disciples, so far, have been missing Jesus' identity. It's like after he stills the the wind, they say, who is this that the wind and the sea obey? They haven't figured him out yet. But finally, in these verses, Peter nails it. You're the Messiah! Now, there were a lot of different views of Messiahship back then, or, or being God's agent back then. But generally, the idea was that the Messiah would bring deliverance. And yet, Jesus says, be quiet. Don't tell anybody about this. So we go on to the mystery of the Messiah in verse 30. Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Jesus tries to minimize the publicity of miracles whenever possible. So he heals a skin disease. In chapter one, he says, don't tell anybody. He raises Jairus' daughter. He says, don't tell anybody. Same with when he heals somebody deaf. When he heals somebody blind, he says, don't even go into the village because they're going to ask you. He silences demons who are revealing his secret identity. He really wants to avoid a, a data breach here. <clears throat> and, and there are reasons why he wants to keep it quiet. Publicity means the paparazzi will be chasing you all over the place. Crowds will be squishing on you, like in Chapter 3. It means no time for the disciples to eat, sometimes in Chapter 6. It means catching naps in a boat, like in Chapter 4. And another minor inconveniences that the current government not wanting to be replaced will kill you. But another complication is misunderstanding, because people aren't going to understand the meaning of Jesus' messiahship without the cross. They won't understand that without the resurrection. And that's why in chapter 9 and verse 9, after the transfiguration, Jesus says, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they don't understand the meaning of the Messiah. And so in verse 31, Jesus goes on to begin to explain his secret identity to them. The prophets had promised God coming to deliver his own people. They promised a Davidic ruler. They promised a suffering servant. They promised a son of man. And at least the last two, the suffering servant and the son of man, were closely identified with God's people. But what no one was expecting was that all these figures would come In the same person. Jesus' mission redefines what it means to be the Messiah. People expected their deliverer to crush Rome. Jesus came instead to let Rome crush him, because Rome was small fries. (laughs) Jesus didn't come to deal with Rome. Jesus came to conquer sin and death for all of humanity. So in verse 31, Jesus defines his identity as the suffering son of man. And Mark is later clear in the Gospel, in in, uh, chapter 13 and in chapter 14, that Jesus is drawing here on Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the promised son of man in those passages. And he uses that again in chapter 14, before the high priest, to redefine when the high priest says, so, you think you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus, yes. And you'll see the Son of Man coming. He, he again defines it in terms of this Son of Man. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, there are four empires. And each of the four empires and their kings are depicted as, as beasts, as animals. But then there's a fifth empire, and that's God's kingdom. And that is depicted not as a beast, but as a human one, as a Son of Man. Each figure stands for both an empire and its king. The son of man stands for God's people in Daniel 7, who it says will be persecuted under the horn of this final evil empire. And and then they're exalted. But it also stands for the king in each of these kingdoms. That's why it speaks of the son of man receiving worship. Because in this son of man, God's kingdom in both God and humanity are brought together. So it makes sense for Jesus as the Son of Man, identifying with his people, suffering under this final evil empire. It makes sense for him to be crushed under Rome. But Peter still doesn't understand. And so this brings us to verse 32, misunderstanding the Messiah. Peter rebukes Jesus, it says, Now, disciples weren't supposed to correct their teacher, much less rebuke them. So Peter decides to do this privately, to take him aside privately. But Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter privately. He turns and rebukes Peter in front of his peers. That was normally not considered appropriate behavior. That wasn't the behavior Jesus taught normally. But this is a special circumstance, because all the disciples need to be corrected on this point. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to call Peter Satan. Because Satan had opposed, and in, in testing Jesus, he'd opposed Jesus' mission. And Peter is doing exactly the same thing here. In, in the parallel passage in Matthew, Peter goes from being praised as the rock to being called a stumbling block. goes from being a good rock to a bad rock. So Jesus addresses Peter's spiritual blindness. He'd already said in chapter 4 that the outsiders were blind. In chapter 8, we find out that the insiders are blind. He says to his disciples, are you still blind? Do you still not understand? And then Jesus illustrates his point by healing a blind man in two stages. This is like the paragraph right before Peter's confession. Peter still needs the second stage. Peter still sees, like... People as trees walking around. And this brings us to the point that Jesus wants to make then to Peter and to all the disciples, which is martyrs for the Messiah in the next few verses. Peter didn't want to follow a suffering Messiah because following to the cross means that's where we're going to. So in verse 33, we see about the mind of the Messiah. Set your mind on God's ways, not on human ways, he says. It's easy to be a fan of Jesus the celebrity when he's going around healing people and so on, but who wants to follow a Messiah all the way to the cross? So Jesus says, get behind me, which was the appropriate place for a disciple. Get back to following me, like he called Peter to do at the beginning. If the cross is what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, what does it mean to be a disciple of the Messiah? In verse 34, Jesus addresses all of his would-be followers, explaining that following means following all the way, including to the cross. Peter is sure he'll never deny Jesus. 1429, he just asserts it. James and John are sure that they can share Jesus' cup and baptism in 1039. Yet those who once abandoned their livelihoods to follow, even to seminary, They abandoned Jesus himself rather than die for him. That was one thing they weren't ready to abandon yet. But verses 35 to 37, Jesus gives us the math. It's, it's wise. You know, for those of us who are old, few of us here who are old, we want to invest in retirement, right? But retirement's just for a few years. What about investing in forever? And that's what Jesus goes on to talk about, investing in real life. Psalm 47 says that nothing we, we have could possibly ransom us from death. You know, you gain the whole world. If you lose your life, the world isn't going to do you any, any good. We can't even give the whole world to preserve our life. Yet Jesus gave his life to ransom the whole world. We see this illustrated with a, a rich man in chapter 10 who talks about following Jesus, but he ends up abandoning a chance at eternal life and the opportunity to be Jesus' follower, to keep his wealth. The guy was arithmetically challenged. I think I misspelled that on the PowerPoint, uh, but please don't notice that, because then my students will say I can't mark them if they misspell things. But anyway, <laughs> he, was, he was arithmetically challenged. Most people recognize that a year is longer than a day, but forget that eternity is longer than a hundred trillion lifetimes. As the missionary martyr Jim Elliott put it, a person is no fool who gives what they can't keep to gain what they can't lose. Meeting the Messiah in verse 38. There were a few disciples who actually would see a foretaste of Jesus coming. And that's in the transfiguration that immediately follows this. And so Jesus talks about how there are a few of you who are here who, who will see the kingdom coming with power. But that's a foretaste. In verse 38, Jesus is talking about when we actually all see him when he comes. Verse 38 shows that when he comes, everything will be brought to light. <clears throat> the Son of Man, he says, will, will come with power and glory. And this Son of Man, in verse 38, returns to what Jesus was saying back in verse 31. Jesus is the Son of Man. And it also revisits this idea in Daniel chapter 7. Because yes, the Son of Man would suffer under the hands of this final evil empire, which in his day was considered to be Rome. Suffer under this final evil empire. But the Son of Man would also be exalted and then would reign forever the Son of Man would receive all authority and honor. Eternity lasts longer than the present, and those who are ashamed of Jesus because of human opinion, which in this case included Peter, will have reason for true and lasting shame. So the Messiah's message to us, what does this say to us? Well, what did it say to Mark's first target audience? In recent years, the emperor had burned Christians alive to light his imperial gardens at night. Some Christians, like Peter, may have denied their Lord to save their skins. And they needed hope. And so this this message, that what Mark tells them about Peter, who's like a hero to them, it's going to get their attention. Yeah, Peter's like a hero to us, but look, he, he even denied his faith. Early on, he was just like us. And yet he was somebody that the Lord called to be a fisher of people. And God didn't just say, I want you to be that. He said, I will make you that. And God is able to take us, whatever we are, wherever we are, and make us into what he's called us to be. These, these Christians in, in Rome and elsewhere in the empire needed to know hope that the spirit baptizer can make even failures into fissures of people. We have to preach what scripture teaches, even when it's uncomfortable, and I'm sure, well, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that are more, um, more fun, in a sense. And, and so, if, you, if you're, this is your first chapel, don't worry, I only speak once a year. <clears throat> But, but we have to preach whatever scripture teaches. It's not how big our churches are, it's not how many followers we have on Facebook, but whether we prepare disciples who can persevere no matter what. It's easy for me to preach from a passage like this in the U.S. right now. It was harder when I was teaching students in northern Nigeria who were committed to reach unreached peoples there One of the students, Buki, came from a family in southern Nigeria where she had been kicked out of her her Muslim family when she became a follower of Jesus. But when I would teach on passages like this, she was thinking about Muslims in northern Nigeria and thinking about how it might cost her her life. I spent three summers in Plateau State, Nigeria, And in one predominantly Christian village where I taught a number of rural pastors, the next year, jihadists slaughtered Christians, turned the churches into latrines, and declared an Islamic state. A few days before 9-11 in the US, jihadists started murdering Christians in the main city where I'd stayed. About 10,000 people died that year. Over 4,000 Christians were martyred for their faith in Nigeria last year. Christmas Eve, 2023, jihadists slaughtered 170 Christian worshipers in Plateau State. Global secular media doesn't seem to care if it's jihadists killing African Christians. Racism takes many forms. On average, a Christian dies for her faith every two hours. Last year, over 14,000 churches, Christian schools, or hospitals Were attacked. So it's it's easier to talk about this in some parts of the world than in others. I, I have friends doing ministry in northern Mozambique. Tens of thousands have been converted there through healings of blindness and deafness in Jesus' name. People have been raised from the dead. But jihadists chop off Christians' limbs until they die, beheading children Crucifying Christians, elsewhere when atheists in Sweden burn Korans, Islamists burn Christian homes in Pakistan in supposed reprival, reprisal. There's violent repression of Christians in Manipur in India, majority Christian people groups, and others in Myanmar, and, and so on. And we have students here from some of these areas. How can I, as an American, preach to those who face such hardships. But even here, we can face testing. When I was about ready to finish my my PhD, one professor said, I might not be allowed to graduate because I was too openly religious. But I'd already been beaten and had my life threatened for sharing Christ in the streets. I wasn't going to be intimidated by somebody telling me I wouldn't be allowed to graduate, Although I did go and check with my other professors just to make sure it wasn't true. But facing persecution makes one count the cost of what one has to live for. Jesus, if he's really Lord, he's worth everything. Will you take up your cross to follow Jesus to the cross? Lord, empower us with your spirit and make us fishers of people.